Welcome back to the LED Project Podcast. My name is Kyle Krieger, uh, joined today, as always, by my guy, Wilkie Law. Will, what's going on? Not much. Enjoying this detective heat. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, you are you are in the minority. Up here in Wisconsin, it got down into the 50s last night, so I got to open up the window. Ooh, let me tell you, it's fantastic. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I don't think we've seen a 50 degrees in a while. So, right, right. So, we are we are so thrilled and honored to have Dwayne Reed on the podcast today. Dwayne, how are you, sir? Yeah, man, awesome. We we connected with you a little bit, you know, through your Twitter and your YouTube and your Instagram, and uh, just feel like you have a really really powerful story and you're doing some really cool things there in Chicago that uh, we think a lot of teachers could benefit from, man. So we appreciate your time. Yeah, for sure, man. Thanks for, again, scouting me out, saying what's up to me and, and setting this thing up. It should be a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. So, Will, you want to kind of give him the, the rundown overview of what we're trying to do with the podcast? Sure. Um, well, what we did, what we're doing, our goal with the podcast is to kind of bring original voices uh, of educators from the classroom and stakeholders in education to the masses. Uh, a lot of times what we see on the news, there's a lot of negative, you know, uh, press about what teachers are doing or what teachers are not doing or how standards are not being met. And we're just of the mindset that we believe that there are great teachers doing great things in a lot of classrooms that are just not getting publicized. Um, so we started a conversation between Kyle and I about what education is, it should be, how can we reframe it, reshape it to meet the needs of our students. And then along the way, we decided that we would go ahead and add in. We needed to add in more voices and bring teachers on board to have to extend the conversation and so that we can actually get this greater collective voice of what education looks like in our country. And so that's why we're, you know, we're excited to have you on. Um, someone from Chicago and the great thing that you're doing over there with your kids and connecting with them. Um, and just have you you know, share a little bit about yourself with, with, with our audience. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, one, I think it's really cool that um, you all are doing that, really trying to shed some light on uh, the positive, the, the good that's happening in education. It's funny, we do hear about the negatives so often. Uh, however, being kind of um, on the front lines, being in the classroom, being able to communicate with so many educators and teachers across the world, I've seen so much good that, man, far outweighs anything that I've ever done. Um, so I think it's really awesome that you two are kind of uh, leading the charge for um, shedding a light on the good things that are happening in our in our profession. Yeah, absolutely, man. So absolutely. And, and, the mission of our the mission of our uh, nonprofit um, is simply to add value to bring back the value to the teaching craft. Um, because teachers, we get beat down because we, we, we believe the press. Even though we see it, you know, a lot of times we, do, we start to believe the press that's been said and we kind of become jaded about our, in our opinion about education. And it's like if you have a negative experience, then how can you turn it around and turn it into a positive? Because there's so many people who are working in negative experiences and negative circumstances, but they find a way to turn it around. And I think when we can share those stories with other teachers, it's kind of being like that beacon of hope for, for educators to know that even though it's bad, you can still do something to make it better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Dwayne, so if you don't mind, do you want to just kind of give our listeners uh, a little bit of your backstory, kind of where you where you grew up and, and how it is that you got to be a teacher and, and where you're teaching at now? Yeah. So, uh, my name is Dwayne Grady. Um, I am 27, just had a birthday recently. Um, I grew up in Chicago. Um, I never really had any dreams, aspirations to be a teacher at all. Um, you know, they say some people, they knew they were going to be a teacher from the day they were born. They used to have quote unquote school with their siblings or their cousins. Never did anything like that. Um, actually, I didn't hate school. I was just interested towards it. I didn't feel like it was the greatest thing ever. I didn't feel like it was the worst thing ever. Um, I went off to college in Indiana, um, and I had to drop out of school because the out-of-state tuition was a little too much for us to afford. Um, so I, I moved back to Chicago, and I was just working part-time, and I tried to figure out what 
kind of was my calling in life, what I was going to do. So I took a um, kind of a, a aptitude test that kind of tells you what you're best suited for. And it kept pointing back to like service industry, not service like working at a movie theater like I did, but service like like teacher or nurse or things like that. So it kept coming up service and I was like, all right, whatever, whatever, whatever. So I looked at YouTube, the day in the life of a teacher. And then I looked at YouTube again, the day in the life of a black teacher, day in the life of a black male teacher. And I kept saying like, man, this is something that I can do. Like, I feel equipped to do this. I love kids. I feel like I can get through a seven and a half hour day and teach them some things to try it out. So I went back to community college. School in Illinois and got my teaching uh, degree and certification. And um, I finished my first year of teaching here on the west side of Chicago, um, which is where I also live. So I actually live in the neighborhood where I teach, which is really cool. Um, just finished my first year of teaching here um, uh, last month. So, wow, oh, man, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. And I tell you, we share a similar story because this is going to be, I've, I've been an instructional coach, a math instructional coach for the last three years, and this is my first year going back into the classroom. And I'm going back into the classroom in the school in my community, in my neighborhood. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pick your brain a little bit, get the insight on how that how that dynamic works, what that looks like from your perspective. So yeah. So you know, from from your perspective, Dwayne, what do you think is the value of a really great teacher? students should be taught? Um, I think one thing that all students 
should be taught is to value themselves. I think um, if I, as a student, as a scholar, know that I mean something, then I know that I can do something. Um, I was watching a movie the other day, and the main character was struggling with his sense of purpose. Um, so he was doing the day-to-day things, but he said, I can do those things, but what, why am I doing these things? Like, What's the purpose behind it? What's my motivation? And in my mind, he was struggling with a sense of, of value. Like he needed someone to affirm, to validate him, um, to let him know that, no, you do mean something in this world. So I think that if students are taught that, um, if their value is cultivated, is affirmed, is validated, is built up, is championed, is encouraged, then I think that their potential is boundless. Like I think that any type of expectations that we place on them will be far exceeded because, again, if I know who I am and I'm founded in that and in that, and I'm, I really understand who I am and what I bring to the table, there's really not a limitation on what I can do um, or, or, or who I can be. So I think that the number one thing that students need to be taught is is their value. Yeah. And, and, and to that point, you know, we were talking a little bit as the podcast was getting started about, you know, why we do the podcast to bring value to the to teachers. I mean, I think it's really challenging for a teacher who doesn't feel valued themselves, whether it's, you know, intrinsically or by their by their administration and colleagues or whether it's by society. I think it's hard for teachers to pass that value on. And that's a part really a part of why we do what we do with our nonprofit and with this podcast is to make sure that the more teachers really feel like you said, you use the words affirmed and validated and have a sense of purpose. The more teachers that have that, the more kids that are going to get that passed on to them. Definitely. I think, um, just even by way of, of transference or if I'm by you, like I'm just, it's like a, like a social and emotional osmosis kind of like, I'm by you, I'm existing, you're, you're there, you're in my presence. I, there's this quote that says more is caught than taught. So I can talk mm-hmm. to you left and right. And it might go in one ear and out the other. It's most likely going to go in one ear and out the other, especially if we're talking kids. But you're going to see my life, and you're going to hear how I interact with other people, and you're going to pick up on those things more than you're going to pick up on, you know, the two plus twos that I teach you. So I think that, yeah, just by being in, in constant community with our scholars or with other teachers or colleagues, I think those, those values are transferred um, rather easily. Yeah, you know, and and the thing that even just, you know, stands out, you know, this is the first real conversation we have is, is your word choice. I think, and, and I know this from my experience as a teacher initially starting out, the language I used was not as affirming as it could have been. Like you use the word scholars and all, you know, I, I mean, I can tell just by the way you select your words and, and do that, that you're sharing those same things with kids. And I think you know, you, you said that our words might go in and out of their ears, but you say these things enough times to them, you know, eventually they start to believe in, and, you know, a part of, you know, being in, in community with people is the culture that you create. And I think our, our words, and I'm learning that in my mid thirties, that my words have way more power than I ever anticipated they would. Yeah. made a poor choice uh, of words or, you know, phrasing, um, I, I see how impactful even what I would have considered to be the most insignificant of words, how, how they mean something uh, to other people differently. I was with a scholar and she had come up to me during, um, I can't remember what, what we were doing, but she had come up to me and she was in my in my opinion, she was talking kind of reckless. Like she was saying something that was out of order. And then I looked in her face and I said, "Get up out my face! Like like stop talking to me right now if you're gonna talk to me reckless like this." And then she walked away, you know, mad, fuming, X Y Z. But she came back five minutes later 
on her own volition. I was, you know, I think we were at recess or something. I was, you know, minding my business. And she said, Mr. Reed, I really didn't appreciate when you said get up out my face. Like, I felt like that was rude. I felt like you had to talk to me like that. She's like, you know, you weren't yelling. You didn't do nothing crazy. But I just feel like your word choice was, was rude. And I didn't appreciate that. And I was like, dang. I apologize. I'm sorry. I should not have done that whatsoever. And I left it at that. But then she went on to say, and I'm sorry that I came to you talking all reckless. Like, I shouldn't have done that neither. Like, woo, 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 woo. And it was just such a profound event for a number of reasons. One, because she was, like, hip enough to apologize to me when I didn't ask her to. Two, because she was hip enough and wise enough to say, look, you hurt me. And I didn't appreciate that. And I don't want you to do that ever again and it was all based on a few words that I used that I didn't even think were going to be that significant that powerful later on a few weeks later she was telling me a story about how her and her mom had got into it and her mom had like you know got on her and used the words get about my face those exact same words that I had used you know, a few weeks earlier. So she's used to hearing this and there's not a negative, there's like a really negative connotation associated with it. Not like a laughing, oh, get up out my face, girl. No, but a, look, get up out my face. And there might be some more choice words used there. So I think, yeah, words are so very powerful because I don't know what you've been through with those words that I just used with you. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's super important for us to, kind of like what you said, Cal, be more positively affirming more often than not as opposed to um, using words that are obviously negative. Yeah. Yeah. So, Dwayne, from your perspective, what is the state of education right now? Uh, Let me preface it by saying, man, this is my first year, so I'm not as knowledgeable on... um, everything and I won't pretend to be but from what what I see you know just perusing through um, my professional learning network on Twitter or things at my school or things I hear on the news um, I think the state of learning or the state of teaching the profession is I think it's a little outdated um, I think Every other system um, or every other kind of culture or group is changing with the times, becoming more digitalized, um, connecting with more people globally. I think every other system and community and culture is doing that outside of the teaching profession. Um, I think we still maintain a lot of the same um, mandates and practices uh, as we did 100 years ago. Um, or at least as we did 20 years ago when I was coming up in school. So I think if we're not evolving with the times, um, we're obviously getting behind. And that's problematic because our kids are evolving. The world around them is evolving. So why isn't the method with which we teach them evolving? So that's one of the first things that comes to mind. Um, Another thing that comes to mind is I feel like people often are okay with the status quo. Um, I feel like a word or phrase that I hear often is, it is what it is. And I almost hate that phrase. I hate when people say that. Because um, I don't think that that has to be the case. Yeah, it is what it is, but it don't have to be that. It doesn't have to be what it's been. Um, we can change that. So I think um, we're filled with a lot of individuals or people who are okay with status quo, but we're also filled with people who aren't and who want to change things and want to see the the profession and education evolve. So um, you mentioned the beacon of hope earlier. I think there are several beacons of hope, several lighthouses, if you will, in the crashing sea of education. And um, I'm excited to see where we we move from from here. So those are kind of some of my initial thoughts on education being here for, you know, less than a year. So then do you have a, um, you know, an educational philosophy that you kind of subscribe to or a, a, you know, kind of a core set of beliefs about um, teaching? Yeah, uh, good question. I say in terms of a philosophy, it's, it's kind of all over 
However, it could just literally be synthesized to, to one word, love. Um, I think if I go into the classroom, truly uh, others-centered, I've won. You know what I'm saying? Like, we, we've already won. Everyone's already won in that case, regardless of what you score in your tests, regardless, regardless of what the data shows. Um, if I go in thinking, how can I love this person, this scholar, their family? Like, I've already won. They've already won. Um, I think relationships are key. Relationships and education mean everything. Um, I think that social, emotional piece is so much more important than the academic piece. Um, because I think that, like they say all the time, the old adage, like, you can't, you can't uh, teach them until you reach them. Or you have to reach them before you teach them. I think that's so very true. Um, you don't really care what I have to say until you care that I love you type thing. So um, I think the relationship aspect of it is key. Uh, like you mentioned earlier, I think I'm okay with taking risks, being outside of the box. With failure, I'm so okay with failure um, because I know that ultimately we're failing forward, um, as Will Smith would say. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think my philosophy is, man, how can I communicate my love for you? And how can we now use this to uh, activate you academically? Mm. Can I just say this real quick? You do not talk like a first-year teacher. I am... <laughs> I am loving the dialogue, man. It, it's just, it, it, and again, for a veteran teacher who, whose passion is new teachers, that is my passion. My passion is seeing others succeed in this class that, that I love so dearly. Um, and to hear this voice of not only a, a teacher, first-year teacher, but a black male teacher. You know, we're an endangered species in, in, you know, in an educational system that, that really, you know, we're not, uh, we're, there's not many of us drawn to it. So it just really, it's really uplifting and inspiring for me to, uh, to, to, to sit and have a conversation with you and you be so calculated and deliberate with, with how you, what you want to do. You know, one of my big things is intentionality. If you, if you go in with the right intention, you know, if I hit you in your eye, what was the intention? Oh, he was stretching and he actually hit me in my eye. Okay, that's different than saying, okay, I was angry with you and I punched you in your eye. The intentions, the intent behind everything is what makes the difference. And you, you just seem like you have a handle on that. And I just want to salute you for, uh, for, for getting a handle on that early. And, you know, and like I say, it, it's, I tell people you're not really, uh, you're not really molded into what you're going to become as a teacher until your third year. So I definitely want to continue this conversation, this relationship, and, and talk with you later on in your career and see how you've developed and morphed even more than what you are already. So, yeah. Super excited, man. Super excited. Thank you. Thank you for taking Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. Um, so, I was looking on your IG, and I love the fact that you rap. And I mean, I'm a former rapper, music producer. I love the idea of bringing music in the classroom. Um, what role does music play in your classroom and your teaching? Yeah, uh, so everybody loves music. It's transcendent. I don't care if you go to Africa, China, uh, you know, South America, any place. You play that Michael Jackson song, and everybody's going to start tapping their feet. Um, so because it's so transcendent and because it kind of rule, rules everything around us, um, I think it's important that we let it consume our classrooms. I mean, consume, like, everything that we do. So, for example, in my classroom, we have all types of uh, musical chants and cheers, and um, I use these as transition tools. Um, So, for example, when we're um, in our our reading stations and we're transitioning back to our desks, I have this song that I sing from a camp that I used to go to, and it's, take a seat, take a seat, take a load off your feet. Take a seat, take a seat, take a load off your feet. And by using that song, it does it does a number of things. Um, one, it's it, it livens us up after, you know, sitting in our circles for, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes. Um, but then also it kind of eradicates uh, the useless talking that takes place. Because if you're singing, you can't really be talking at the same time to your neighbor as you transition back to your desk. So it kind of keeps us uniform in that regard. Um 
But then, like I said, also, it's it's fun. It's fun to sing that. And kids are, are creatures. All of us are creatures of habit, but kids especially. So when they sing that, it, it activates something in their mind that says, okay, we just finished our stations. We just finished our groups. We are moving on to the next thing. So it gives them a, a sense of security um, that... That's like, okay, we're moving on to the very next thing that I know is supposed to be happening. Um, so that's helpful in the environment, just kind of that that consistency. So that's what that song brings to the table. And that's just a transition song. We listen to all type of music during uh, class in the morning. Um, and then and when my class transitions to another class um, in the afternoons when we're about to leave, it's kind of like, a, you know, a hype. On Fridays, we play... Um, uh, what's this by Montel? Oh, how'd it go? It's how Yeah, so we play that. And, yeah, it's Friday night. All the kids bust out there dancing. All the dances that they think should have been done in the 1990s. Um, yeah, so we, we do it. We listen to music when we have independent work. Um, sometimes even when we're testing or we have a quiz, I play some music silently. We use it all the time because kids are always listening to it. They can quote you every line from the latest rap song. Um, so why would I not utilize music and even create, um, songs that help them, uh, academically. So music is, is everything and we use it all the time. And this is a question. I, I mean, I, this has been on my mind because I, I see a lot of teachers doing it, and like me going back into the classroom, just trying to, you know, get get a couple of gems and nuggets that I can transition to my own style of teaching. But how does it work with the timing, with you know, with creating the songs, teaching the kids the songs, and also teaching the content? Like, like do you see like there's a like there's a strain there, or do you think it opens it up to where you have more freedom with the content because of the connection with the song? Yeah, uh, I don't consider it a strain. I think there's a little legwork that you have to do. Um, you kind of have to create, in my opinion, in my classroom, you have to create a culture that says that this is okay. You have to create a culture that says that, no, this is a part of the learning process, not some ancillary thing, not some auxiliary thing, not some, all right, we're going to try something new. It's like, no, this is learning. This is how we learn. Um, so I think if you establish that from jump and you create that culture that says that this is okay, then, for example, when you have the principal walk into your classroom, no one's going to look up when you're singing a, song, a rap song. Like, no one's going to look up and be like, oh, should we be doing this when, you know, somebody comes in and observes because they know that, no, this should be this should be done. Like, this should be happening. Um, and so I don't think it creates a strain. Um, I think if you, as the educator, as the teacher, if you do the legwork leg work from the front, um, the front end, it just kind of flows later on. Like, so we're, we're listening to Drake and Rihanna uh, um, songs while we're taking a test, while I'm, while I'm being observed. And it's nothing. Like, no one bats an eye because it's normal. Um, and then in terms of, like, writing educational songs, academic songs, and teaching them, um, again, if you – obviously, my kids knew that when I first started, that I was a quote-unquote rapping singing teacher. But I think if you're coming in new with that, it's just a matter of just doing it. Like, yeah, some kids are going to be like, oh, this is corny, this is lame, this is – but they'll, they'll get with it eventually. They all do. They all eventually do. When I released the song, Welcome to the Fourth Grade, I had high schoolers and college-age kids saying, man, this was my jam. Thank you for making this. So ultimately, they'll come around. Um, I think it's just a matter of setting that tone early, creating that culture early on that says, no, this is this is normal, like normalizing it, and then rocking from there. Man, I love it. Love it. You just answered like three of my questions right back to back. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so so you said so before prior to teaching you 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 were a rapper, singer, songwriter, correct? Um, not by or you just kind of trade. It was just more of a hobby. Got it. Okay. 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 So can you talk a little bit about you can't your quote you can't take education because it's mine. Yeah. So um, my scholars and I had created a chance. Um, that we would say every day, actually. It's funny, when I was in sixth grade, there was a another sixth grade class, a teacher that I didn't have and I wasn't a part of, and they said, uh, uh, they had like a scripted 
chant or saying that they said every single morning. And some of my classmates and some of my classmates to this day, way back then, still know that chant and still know that saying. So I was like, man, when I teach, I want to say something every single day that my kids say. So we had this saying, and at the end of it, we say, get this education. You can't take it because it's mine. And I think, man, you can take away money. You can take away material possessions. Um, you can even take away someone's you know, freedom, but you can't take the, their mind away. You can't take what they've learned away. Um, and you can't take their ability to critically use what they've learned. So I wanted my kids to know and everybody else to know that my kids knew that, yo, once I get this education, you can't have it. It's mine. It's not going anywhere. Mm. That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, I grew up... Oh, sorry about that. I grew up here in Houston, and my great-grandfather used to always tell us that Get an education because that's the one thing no one can take away from you. And so I think it's awesome that you're propagating that now to the next generation of kids. Mm. So, awesome. Um, so let's go back. You already addressed the social emotional needs, I think, when we were talking about it earlier. So how do you set and maintain your high, high academic standards for your students? in the midst of this culture that you've created? Yeah, uh, I think that's a good question. I think, um, so I, I never lower my expectations. Um, I think I can differentiate my expectations, but I never lower them. Um, so I never say, oh, to this kid, oh, you can't do this. Or I never think, oh, you can't do this. I say, no, you can do this. And almost like you will do this. Um, but again, I think that's that's motivated, motivated by the culture that's created that says, look, I love you. And I think once my scholar knows that I love them and I love their family and I'm for their best, um, I think they almost want to reach or surpass the expectations that I've placed on them. Um, like you can see it in their eyes. You can see them let them personally let down when they let you down. Um, and they're like, they, they, they beat themselves up because they're like, man, I know that I'm better than this because Mr. Reed sees better in me. So it's like, if Mr. Reed sees something in me, I know I should be able to reach that because like, I know he's not lying. I know he loves me. Um, I've had, I got so many letters of apology and so many letters of, um, like, I know I can do better from my students, like just on their own volition. They just wanted to write to me and say, you know what? I'm sorry for yesterday. I'm sorry for my attitude. Um, I'm sorry that I didn't try as hard as I could have on, you know, that test or during that lesson because we've created that culture that says, man, there's really high expectations here because you can do it because you can, you have the ability to, um, and the resources and tools necessary to do so. Um, so I think by most like cultivating that, that, that culture and those high relationships, um, or those significant relationships, it goes hand in hand with the academic aspect of it, having high expectations, um, on that level. It's like, man, my teacher loves me and he expects much of me because he loves me so much. So let me kind of, let me do for him what I know that I can do academically. Um, so yeah, never lowering the expectation. Um, and I think that the relationship piece, the social emotional piece even raises the bar higher. Um, and I think that that's a, that's a very good thing. Yeah. And, and I, I totally can, you know, understand and echo your point to where I know as a student, those teachers who I really cared about and and I knew cared about me, I was willing to, you know, try to move heaven and earth to make them happy and and to do the best that I could for them. And I know the students that I really connected with and poured into, you know, even when, you know, I would have to fuss on to them, they knew it was out of love and they would and they would take that criticism or take those critiques and, and run with them as opposed to getting defensive. Cause I had a lot of kids who I didn't have a relationship with, or I didn't have a relationship that was strong. And when you try to criticize them, they instantly get defensive and it, it doesn't add to that. And, and I think, you know, the way you said it is, is, is right on point with that. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think that's, and not just even kids that, that get defensive. We as adults do that as well. I know I do. Like, if, if I don't have a relationship with you, and I don't know, as uh, Will mentioned before, I don't know your intentions. I don't know the intent behind what you say or do. When you say or do something, I'm like, yo, who, who are you? Back up. Take a sec. Um, but if you've developed a relationship with me, I'm fine if my mom tells me, look, this is what you need to change. This is what you need to do differently. I'm not going to be as defensive, but if some random stranger on Twitter is kind of calling me out, I'm like, uh, who are you again? Like, what are we doing here? Um, so I think, obviously, kids operate the same way. Like, if I haven't, like you said, Kyle, developed that deep relationship with my scholar, um, they're kind of going to be like, what authority, what credibility do you have to speak into my life? Um and I think that they're keen to that. Like they're they're woefully aware of that sometimes. And that's the that can be an indictment on teachers. Like it's on us to develop those relationships with all of our all of our our our, our students. Absolutely, absolutely, one hundred percent. I just have a call back to question, DJ, just a little bit to kind of talk about the those standards and because you may mention about you know, building that and never lowering that with your student. And I know you teach in your community that you live there in Chicago. So how does that work with the parents? How did it work this year with your parents, like as far as you connecting with your parents and getting them on board to, uh, you know, take a stake in this in the child's learning? Yeah, so um, actually from jump, once I figured out my class list, um, I got their phone numbers and the email addresses of the parents, and I reached out to them, and I tried to set up uh, home visits. I-, I worded it differently. I can't remember home visits because home visits can have a negative connotation for a lot of people. Nonetheless, um, I tried to visit as many parents and students at their homes as I could. Um, a lot of them said no because they're like, <laughs> I had one, one teacher on the phone. Uh, excuse me, one parent on the phone, she's like, when they start doing this, home visits, uh-uh, what you talking about? Um, so that was that was interesting, to say the least. A couple people cursed me out, like, what are you, who the F are you type thing? Um, but I think establishing early on that it's in your child's best interest if you and I are partners in this thing, like, um, I think that that's very important. Because once, once that parent knows that you're on their side because you're on their kid's side, everything just kind of starts to flow. Like, even if there's issues or there's conflict or confrontation, just kind of like Cal mentioned before, it's from a place of, okay, we're trying to grow, as a, as opposed to a place of, you got it out for my baby. Why are you saying this? They don't, um, so it's, it's different with that relationship piece with the parent. Um, I also think that, man, you get those parents on your side early on, if you let them know that, man, you're really for their best interest of their kid, like, they will move heaven and earth for you. Like, it's funny. My mom, she will always side with the teacher. And I used to hate that. Um, I used to absolutely hate that. But now, as a teacher, I love those parents because they're the ones that want what's best for their their child. Um, so I think building a relationship with the parents early on is, is key, is crucial, because at the end of the day, you're both after their child's success. Um, you're both after that. And I think another crucial piece with that is letting the parent know, is reminding the parent that they're the parent. I think a lot of parents can um, get scared when they jump into the school arena. They can feel like they're incompetent. They can feel like they don't know all the stuff that the teacher knows, um, especially depending on their level of education. So I think I as often as possible, try to remind parents that, no, you're the parent. You're in charge, ultimately. Like, I answer to you. This is your child. So giving them the power back or communicating to them, rather, that, yo, the power has always been and will always be yours. Mm, I love that. I love that. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of those, you know, places where we talked initially about you know, the kind of the PR problem that education has is, you know, you, you hear about and you see, and there's kind of that misconception that parents are just automatically siding with their kid, like no matter what the situation is. And, and we've all encountered those parents who no matter what, no matter what their child did, it's not their child's fault. And those parents are are out there, but 
I think, like you said, the majority of teachers are doing good things. And I think the majority of parents are doing good things. And, and I've said this on the podcast before, like my deepest regret starting out in my career is that I didn't do what you did and really um, invested in those parent relationships because not only would it have made my life easier, but it would have enhanced my teaching and, and what my students were getting out of it. Wisconsin, but I taught in Houston seven years. That's how Wilkie and I met. 
And, and when I came in, like I, like I said, I was that stereotypical, like white boy from Wisconsin, small town who moved it, you know, was teaching in inner city Houston to primarily Hispanic kids and African-American kids. So what I did every morning was I, there was country music blaring from my room and every kid knew it. And, and I really tried to be as much as I could, but to your point about making kids know it's okay, like. And it's, they don't even have to see the things, that, they don't have to like the things that we are, but the more we embrace the fact of the things we like, whatever it might be, whether it's, you know, playing, you know, those magic role play games or producing music or fitness or, or whatever it is, it doesn't say those things are okay. It says, you know, whatever you really like is okay. Yeah. And yeah. I, and I... And I think that's the key point in, you know, the kids, especially the young kids, aren't going to associate the things I like are okay with who I am as a person is okay. But the more we can let them know that, hey, you liking poetry or you liking art or you liking dance or whatever it is, is okay, the more they start to internalize that as a person, who they are is okay. you're trying to do, I think is very, very um, important 
uh, it took me a while. You know, I was, you know, I had a great mentor as well, but I started out as an inclusion, special ed inclusion teacher, and we were kind of treated not really like a teacher and just a little bit more than a teacher's aide, you know, but we were kind of in that in-between, so there was really no key tribe or key group that I could gravitate to. Right. It wasn't until I got into the classroom and had my own class that I actually started to connect with people and connect with other educators and start to build that professional learning community around what I believe and what I think would be successful for, um, you know, for my, for my teaching class. So that's why you know, we use the term, but that's, that's the reason why. Because it is, I mean, it takes a village to raise our kids. And when you think of even in our in, in my family's culture, being you know from, from from Western Africa and from the Caribbean, they're still in tribe. There's still many people that still live the tribal mentality where we're all in this together. So we're all going to depend. We're all going to work. We're all going to thrive together. So that's kind of where we you know use that terminology to kind of clarify that. So yes. Yeah. All right. So. Dwayne, we definitely want to be respectful of your time today, so we're gonna, you know, get get kind of into the wrap up questions. So you can you can answer these questions. Uh, a few of them, it can be based on your teaching, or it can just be based on life. So, um, what was the best advice you've ever been given, and who was that person that gave it to you? Um, I'll keep it teaching. Um, if you make it throughout the day without any of your kids being um, hurt. Uh, or killed, you succeeded. <laughs> um, and my mentor gave that to me, my, my teaching mentor. And I think it's so helpful because it kind of removes a lot of the pressure. It's like, yeah, we want you, we have high expectations, but at the end of the day, like, we are not, your teaching is so very valuable. Like, I'm not literally saving your life. Like, I'm not a doctor that's you know, treating you for cancer or for a gunshot wound in that very moment. Um, so if I've made it through a day safe and sound and you learn just a little bit of something, I've succeeded. Um, and then all I need is 180 days of that mentality and I've got a successful year then, right? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, as a, you know, as someone who just finished their first year, what advice would you give to the uh, the new crop of teachers that are going to start this fall? I think some of the just a lot of the things that we talked about, even um, as their most important, that relationship piece with both the parents and the students, super key. Um, I think. Being okay with failure. One of the one of the problems that I had for myself this year was I had such high expectations for myself that I didn't really allow for myself to fail forward. I was more I was frustrated with my failure often, um, and I didn't see my own personal failure as growth opportunities. Um, so I think for first year teachers, it'd be important for them to. Be cognizant of the fact that, look, you are going to fail. Um, so I would just encourage them to change their perspective on their failure. Um, I, I think caring less. I think if you if you start off caring more about seeing your children grow as humans and as a as as young people, if you care more about that than anything else. I think you're off to a good start. I think if that's your mindset going in, as opposed to this Pinterest, everything's going to be perfect. I have to get all of my students, you know, three grade levels above where they tested last year. I think you're going like that. Everything's going to be disastrous. But if you go in saying, you know what, how can I get my kids out of here safe again? And having learned a little bit more than they learned the day before. If you go in like that, I think you'll be in good shape. Mm. Nice. Well said. So, um, what is the best book you've read in the last 12 months? Started counseling and my therapist recommended, um, a book on depression for me. I think teachers often 
very often get involved in struggles with mental health. And I don't think it's something that's really addressed a lot. At least I'm not hearing about it. So I think being able to take care of your mental health is what's most important. Like when that plane is about to go down, they say, you know, you put your oxygen mask on first before assisting anybody else. So I think that um, the book that I'm reading on depression is very helpful because it kind of pinpoints some of the potential causes and, and gives some resources on how to kind of get out of that that pit or that rut. And I think it's important for teachers to care for themselves, um, care for themselves mentally, to take a mental health day um, or mental health week if you need it, if you know your school allows for it, um, so that you can come back better than ever to serve your students. What, uh, what was the name of the book you were reading? Uh, I don't remember the specific title. I just know that I was about depression. Like, basically, so you're depressed, now what? Some, something that's like... How can we help you kind of get through this this moment, this season? Awesome. All right. So what uh, what would you say is your proudest moment today? Or, sorry, proudest accomplishment today? I think finishing my first year. <laughs> That's a heck of an accomplishment. Yeah. I think, Still being in your right mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not being, uh, you know, bonkers right now. I think so many, uh, a, a lot of the... Uh, Girls and guys that I graduated with in my teaching class, some of them, you know, didn't go back after Christmas. Um, oh, wow. You know, that's, that, that's why you see a lot of those Christmas bonuses, like, all right, come back. Oh, here's a little extra money. Um, and I think just even finishing one year of teaching is, I kind of put it up there with nursing and with, like, just one of the craziest, most all-consuming professions of all time. And I think just to finish that first year is like I'm I'm proud of myself for that, and I'm I'm proud of my kids for for dealing with me too. So awesome! That's that is a great answer. So before we ask you the final question, um, for people that want to connect with you online, what's the what's the best places for them to connect with you? Oh, sure, uh, on Twitter you can look me up. Uh, at teach Mr. Reed, all spelled correctly, teach M R R E E D. Um, same for Instagram. On Facebook, it's the same, teach Mr. Reed, or you can look up Dwayne Reed. Um, you can hit my email if you want. Yeah, just type in, type in Chicago rapping teacher, and I'll come up on Google. <laughs> I wish I, I wish I people Googled me and something cool came up. <laughs> it would just be like. Mid mid thirties bald dude with salt and pepper beard, but, uh, but no man. Yeah, that's pretty cool, man. Hey, I'll take it. So we, like I said, man, we're we were really excited to connect with you, and we're really grateful you came on, and and we're definitely looking forward to uh, continuing the relationship. So our uh, our final question before we get you out of here: What do you want your lasting legacy to be? let's take a picture and then one of my kids was like yeah Mr. Reed and you can use this picture of us on your obituary and I said what my obituary how, how did we get to this um so I think about I think about death often not in a morbid sense but in a yeah what's my legacy gonna be um I think my legacy to be like love like when I talk to Mr. Reed I felt the love when Mr. Reed was disciplining me, I knew that he loved me. Like, when Mr. Reed was standing in front of his class on the chair, being all ex- extra, as my kids say, being super extra, I knew that he did that because he loved us. Like, I want you to remember, hey, that's one dude that really loved me. Like, I, that's what I want my legacy to be. Awesome, man. Perfect. So, thank you again, man, so much for taking the time to come on and be on the podcast with us. Absolutely, man. I appreciate you guys having me on the podcast and, and enough of, of what I have to say to, to ask me to be here. Well, you know, I think this is one of the beautiful things about teaching is that whether you've been teaching for one year or you've been teaching for 20 years, there's something to be gleaned from the experience, the individual experience that teachers have. And um, so I can say you being in the position that you're in, like I said, again, I salute you again 
for, for what you're doing and for how you're going about it. I think that's the biggest thing because a lot of teachers do great things but don't reflect on it so they don't have that to build off of. So it's almost like they're constantly having to rebuild the boat when all they have to do is keep setting sail. So uh, I, I salute you for that. And again, thank you for taking the time out of your schedule. I know summer, the last, most, most teachers don't want to talk education in summer. I talk, I'm a teacher year round. <laughs> so um, anytime I get an opportunity to speak about education and people who it has in the lives of our, our future, uh, I, I do it as often as I can. So again, we thank you for that. Definitely, I appreciate you guys again for having me on and letting me kind of go all over the place and talk about some things that, that mean a lot to me.